You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. And uh, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming to the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air, and uh, they'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. If you don't own a Bible, if you didn't come with them this morning, just keep this one. Uh, You'll walk out of here with a a free gift. It's pretty special. Um, I wanted to just let you know how grateful I am to be here, and uh, and in particular, how thankful I am for uh, your pastor. I hear, by the way, he's coming back next week. I'll let him know how excited you were. It's, It's great. Yeah, your pastor is a, is a good friend of mine. I'm really thankful for him. And I was thinking, kind of in preparation here, just what I appreciate so much about Pastor Daryl. And uh, two words kind of come to my mind when I think of, of Pastor Daryl. And the first is uh, passionate. And if you know Daryl, you have seen a passionate man. You have seen a man who is passionate about the things of the Lord. He's passionate about the Word of God. He's passionate about the church of Jesus Christ. He just, he loves Jesus so much, and he gets really fired up about Jesus. And he continually, when I'm around him, it's, it's infectious. He stirs my heart, and he, he causes me to want to love Jesus more, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But if I could kind of pair that with another word, um, it's prayer. And uh, one of the things I love about your pastor is that he is a man of prayer. He is so committed to prayer and he knows where the power to do ministry and to live the Christian life comes from. He knows it comes from a, a life that's devoted to prayer. And I, I've seen, as you know, I've been here, I've been welcomed so warmly and incredibly grateful for the kindness and the hospitality. And one of the things that stood out to me, just, you know, as I look around and I'm kind of always, as a pastor walks into another church, he's always watching things. He's just seeing how things are done. You know, what can I learn from? What can I grow in? And one of the things that I've just been so blessed by is everywhere I turn here is I see prayer. I see prayer happening all over the place. It's happening right now in, in a room just to our side here, people praying for you and for this service and praying that the Spirit of God would work. This place is, is deeply saturated in prayer, and my hope and prayer for you and for us this morning is that God would continue to fan the flame of prayer in our own hearts. And so this morning, I want to look at Paul's prayer that falls here in Ephesians chapter 3, For the church in Ephesus, and I believe there's so much we can learn from this, it's important to understand the great work that God calls us to. Oswald Chambers said this, he said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray, he says, when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Just let the conviction of that statement sink in for a moment. Prayer has an incredible way of revealing what really matters most to us. I mean, just think about it for a moment. You ever have one of those friends who only calls you up or comes over when they need something from you? We typically don't call them a friend, right? Nobody wants to be a friend like that. But I just wonder if you just... Think about that just for a moment. If, if we're not all a little bit that kind of friend when it comes to our relationship with God. Prayer is a thermometer for the health of our relationship with God. And if you never pray, it's possible that that's revealing that you don't really know God. I mean, imagine for a second if I said to you, you know, how's your relationship with your spouse? And you were asking me the same question, I said, well, you know what, um, we don't talk at all, but other than that, everything's great. See, prayer reveals the health of our relationship with God, and it is the means to accessing the very power of God in our lives. The success of our lives, of our Christian living, is not ultimately about what great work we can do for God, but what great work God can do through us. So to move forward with his great power at work in our lives, we must go back to our greatest work, and that is the work of prayer. Paul understands that in the book of Ephesians. In fact, if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, you know that it is essentially broken into two parts. The first three chapters have been defined as doctrine or belief. Paul unpacks in three chapters just rich and deep theology, doctrine, 
things that we believe. They're what are called indicatives. They're statements of truth. And then in chapters four through six, he shifts gears, and the last few chapters are filled with imperatives. In other words, he moves from doctrine to duty or from belief to behavior. The Christian's worship to the Christian's walk, as some have defined it. But right in between this is this prayer, and and this really falls in such a strategic place, I believe, in the mind of Paul. You see, the real question Paul is answering in this prayer is, how is it possible for us to believe the right things, to have all of the right truth, and then to live it out effectively? And the answer is right here, it is prayer. I believe this is one of the missing ingredients to many of our uh, Christian living experiences. One of the reasons very few of us experience a strong alignment with our living and what we believe is this missing piece right here. It is a fervent, vibrant, thriving life of prayer that calls upon God to do in and through us what only he can do. That is exactly what Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, and there's so much we can learn. Let's look at the text together. Let's read it first. Beginning in chapter, verse 14, Paul says these words. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being." So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And if there's ever a moment for the church to say amen, it's right here. Amen. Paul shows us how to access this great power of God in our lives. And so this morning, I want to give us a bit of a template modeled off of what Paul does for us here in this prayer, and I hope that this will be an encouragement, an incentive, but maybe even a very clear path for your prayer life in the coming weeks and months and even years ahead. The first thing we can do as we look at Paul's prayer here is this, we can learn to do the same thing, is we can pray with great humility. Pray with great humility. That's really the starting place for Paul's prayer. Right in the very first verse, he says this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. The first thing we notice in this prayer is Paul making a reference to his own posture. The approach to God is the emphasis that Paul is highlighting here for us. And this is really important to see that Paul sees his prayer life and the posture of his prayer life as being one of kneeling and bowing low before God. Now, this is really, really interesting because this is not the normal posture of prayer in the Jewish life. In fact, the the most common way and the most common posture for Jewish uh, Jews, especially in the ancient Near East, but even to this day, is standing. They stand and pray, and you can even see examples of this if you look at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I was there about a year ago, and as the Jews stand before the wall, they pray these prayers, and they slip little prayer notes into the wall. You'll you'll notice, maybe you've even seen, they do this rocking motion at the wall. By the way, all that's doing is it's intended to help them focus on their prayer. To weed out all kind of distractions, It's, it's very similar to us closing our eyes. But whenever you see someone kneeling in prayer in the Bible, he or she is demonstrating great humility and deep emotion before God. By the way, this isn't prescribing kneeling as the only correct posture of prayer. If you were to read through the scriptures, you see that there are many different postures for prayer that are acceptable, and and there are many different times to uh, exercise different postures of prayer. You see people lying prostrate in prayer. You see people standing. You hear people in 1 Thessalonians, for example, lifting holy hands in prayer to the Lord. We do things all the time that demonstrate a posture, whether that be kneeling or standing. We hold hands to demonstrate unity in our prayers. But posture communicates important truths of the heart. They demonstrate the disposition of our heart 
towards God. But it's interesting because posture actually has a, a kind of a cyclical effect to it. You see, sometimes posture doesn't just demonstrate our hearts. Posture also helps to reorient and adjust the posture of our hearts. I, mean, I just want you to think about this for a moment in your prayer life. Maybe you've never tried this, but you could even start today. The simple act of getting on your knees or lying prostrate before God. You know, if you ever come into the Lord in prayer and you're even saying, like, God, I, I'm not sure I'm in the right place to pray. My heart's not right. You know, sometimes just an act of posturing yourself a certain way can remind your heart of who you are and who God is. You see, that's essentially what getting on your knees does. It reminds us that we are low and unworthy and that God is high and exalted way above us. It's a statement of humility. God, who am I to be able to come into your presence? And this is the beginning place for the apostle Paul in his prayer in Ephesians 3. But you see, ultimately, it's not about the posture of your body, although that's not unimportant. God isn't primarily concerned about the posture of your body. He's concerned about the posture of your heart. And as we consider this posture of our own hearts and our prayer lives, I just want to give you three ways that you can apply this to your own prayer life. You can pray with great humility three ways. First one is this, with humble gratitude. A humble gratitude, and Paul really models this for us. The context here actually reminds us that Paul is praying with already infused into his prayer the sense of gratitude and thankfulness to God. You'll notice the very first three words that Paul uses in verse 14. He says, for this reason. Now, that, that should cause us to pause and ask the question, well, for what reason, Paul? You see, Paul has already been laying out a whole body of truth for the church in Ephesus, and Paul is linking his prayer back to all the truth in chapters one through three. By the way, that's a whole other side point that's just so important to understand. Paul is actually praying from Scripture. The Scriptures, the inspired Word of God, even that he has revealed to this church, they are informing and inspiring his prayers. You know, how much of our prayers need to be inspired by Scriptures? But you need to see that Paul is prompted to pray because of all of this truth that he has just unleashed upon the church in Ephesus. All the way back in chapter one, Paul talked about these, the rich reality of God's saving grace in the lives of his people, how God has lavished his grace upon them. In chapter one, verse 10, Paul reminds them that the gospel of grace as a plan, he says in verse 10, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is making it clear that the book of Ephesians is talking about the cosmic implications of the gospel. And do you realize what Paul is unfolding is so phenomenal. He's talked to them about the personal saving grace of God in their lives. And then he moves and says, but by the way, that's not all the gospel is going to do. It's not just going to reconcile you to God. It's actually going to reconcile this entire sin-cursed universe back to God one day. And he moves on into chapter two and he begins to talk about how we are saved by grace through faith. And that none of ourselves is a gift from God, not by our own works. And then he moves from there into talking about how in, how in Christ we have been unified together and that God has taken two people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Those two groups that were thought in the ancient world to be irreconcilable, God takes and he merges them and he creates one new man. All of that as a demonstration, listen, that one day God will take what seems irreconcilable, this sin-cursed universe, and he will bring it back to himself. And Paul says, for this reason, he was stunned by God's grace in saving sinners and uniting them corporately together, this comprehensive plan to renew creation. When we reflect, listen, upon God's amazing grace toward us and towards this universe that is cursed by sin, it should lead us to, to get on our knees before God who called us and adopted us and redeemed us and forgave us. Paul can't help but talk about Christ dying for him the Spirit's work in sealing those who he has brought from darkness to light, from death to life. All of this overwhelms Paul with this sense of gratitude for what God has done. For this reason, Paul says, he bows his knees before the Father, and so should we, church. 
May the disposition of our hearts reflect our understanding of what God has done by his grace and for his glory. And may our prayers and our hearts be filled with a humble gratitude every time we approach the throne of grace because we know who he is and who we are and what he has done to make prayer even possible for us. Secondly, note this, we should pray with humble desperation. Kneeling is a a sign of desperation as well as humility. You see, when we realize that we're approaching the only one who can act on our behalf, it gives us a proper sense of our own helplessness and our own weakness. The very act of prayer is a mark of insufficiency and inadequacy, and it is a statement of God's adequacy and God's sufficiency. When we come before the Lord on our knees, we're saying, God, there are things in my life that I cannot fix. There are things in me that I cannot fix. And God, I've tried or I've tried other solutions, but God, everything in my life is fully dependent upon your power at work in me. It's really interesting. In Acts chapter 20, we read the account of Paul actually speaking to the Ephesian elders, the elders of this church that he's written this letter to. And he has this really emotionally stirring goodbye for them. And you can read in Acts chapter 20, he gives this this incredible speech and he warns them. He loves this church. He has poured his life into this church. He has poured his soul into this church. He has taught this church fervently for years. And now he's leaving them. And and the Bible says that he's weeping with them. His heart breaks for them because the emotional and the spiritual connection he has. But not only that, in his speech, he tells them, listen, that fierce wolves are going to be raised up among even these men, and they're going to try and tear apart the church of Jesus Christ, the church that he purchased with his own blood. And, And Paul knows what's coming. He knows how Satan wants to ravage the church of Jesus Christ, and it breaks his heart. And so the Bible says in, in Acts chapter 20 that he's with these elders. They're crying and they're weeping. And then it says this, that they get on their knees and pray together. Can you just see the situation? Paul is is heartbroken over what's going to happen, and he knows the only one who has the power to do anything about it. It's not in these men. It's not in another great leader or a, a charismatic personality that's going to be raised up in the church there. It is only God who can protect and help and strengthen his church. Amen? Paul knows that God's power is a gift, and so he is desperately pleading with God to give it. I just wonder if you just to stop for a moment, pause, and just reflect on your prayer life. How do you tend to approach God in your prayer life? I think some of us actually approach God in our prayer lives, and usually our prayer life is not very good when we approach God like this, but we approach God with more of a sense of irritation. You know, like we we go to God and we're saying, like, I guess I need to do this. Like, fine, God, I've tried every way. I've tried my own way, and it's not working. Fine, God, I'll give you a try, too. We'll see if that works. Or or we're irritated because we don't think God is answering our prayers on our timeline or on our schedule or the way we want. And so prayer for us is a frustration. It's an irritation. Some of us, though, we approach God more out of obligation. You know, we're going to God because we believe it's the Christian thing to do. You know, we ticked another box and we lived a good Christian life today because we said our prayers. It's more of that sense of I ought to. You know, I guess I ought to do this. I guess I I should add this onto my list or else maybe God won't bless me today the way I think I deserve to be blessed. And I would say both of those are incredibly dangerous. We need not pray with irritation nor out of obligation. We need to learn to pray with desperation. If there is a sense in which we come to the throne of God, we need to cling to it with everything we have because we know that we don't just need to or we ought to, but because we have to. Because everything in our life depends upon it. Because if we don't have God's power and God's presence in our lives, we have nothing. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 15 that apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, our prayerlessness demonstrates we don't believe that's true. But when we pray, we make a declaration that we believe it with all of our hearts. Do you realize this morning that you are helpless and powerless without God? You can do nothing of eternal value or significance apart from the power of God working through you. We need to learn to call out in humble desperation. Thirdly here, we need to call out in humble confidence. 
So how does that work together, desperation and confidence and humility and confidence? Well, Paul shows us that we should come before God here, yes, humbly on our knees, but also with confidence, not arrogance, thinking that God owes us his blessing, but with a humble confidence. You notice, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. That is a statement of utter and complete confidence. He is assured, here it is, listen, of his position in God's family. And here's why, because in chapters one through three, Paul has laid out the foundational doctrine of union with Christ. He's saying, look, who we are is not based upon what we do or what we haven't done. It's not based upon our own personality, or our own abilities or skills. Everything we are is all because of who we are in Christ. And so he wants us to understand our position in Christ. And that position, he says, gives us direct access to God, and we even have the kind of access whereby we can call him Father. Look at chapter 2, just if you look over on the other side of your page there or your Bible, verse 18. He says, for through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And over in chapter 3 again, but verse 12 He says this, in whom we have, he's talking about in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We can have this kind of boldness and confidence because we know we are approaching God as our father. I love what Tim Keller says in relation to this concept. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child, right? Isn't that true? And then he goes on to say this, we have that kind of access. We come to him humbly on our knees, yes, because he is our king, but we come confident and we can rush into the throne room of grace and cling to the throne of grace because he is our father who loves us. And Paul tells us that he is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that's just as if Paul is saying, listen, don't you understand that this is an expression of the father's authority and the rule that he has over all creation. He's saying in others, don't you understand, when you go and you access God the father, you are walking right into the presence of the one through whom every person and everything on the face of this planet and in the entire universe owes its existence to. Every breath that's taken, everything you've laid your eyes on, everything you've experienced, and everything else you haven't but exist, listen, it all flows from God the Father. And you march into the presence of the one who has control of all things. Tell me that doesn't give you confidence in prayer. So we pray with great humility, with humble gratitude, with humble desperation, with humble confidence. Secondly, we pray with great clarity. We we must learn in our prayer lives to not be confusing or chaotic, but we need to learn how to pray with great clarity. And Paul models this for us. He moves now into the content of the prayer. This is his appeal for the believers in the church in Ephesus. And there are two main requests that he makes and a third one that is essentially a summation of the other two. I just want to encourage you as you think about these this morning, listen, it's one thing to teach it or hear it, these truths. It's a very different thing to experience this and it's transforming power in your life. So how do we pray with great clarity? Well, first, we can pray like this, that we need an increased spiritual ability. Let this be your request when you come before the Lord. The Lord, we need, I need an increased spiritual ability in my life. In verse 16, look what it says. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul appeals to the riches of his glory. You know, glory is simply the reflection of the essence of one's being. It's the summation of all of one's attributes. So it's like taking all of God's character and attributes and pulling them all together and holding it forth. That's the glory of God. It is all that he is. 
And so Paul is basically saying, when he appeals to the riches of his glory, he's saying, God, provide what I'm about to ask from the inexhaustible wealth of all that you are. He says, God, I know, I know that you have all of this and so much more. The riches of your glory is more than enough to give to this church and these people what I'm asking for. And you say, what is he asking for exactly? It's right there, isn't it so clear? That they may be strengthened with power. Some translations say strengthened with ability because that is the sense of what Paul means, that they have a, a supernatural divine ability to be who God has called them to be. And you'll notice that this takes place in their inner being. Strengthened with power in our inner being. By the way, that word inner being, Paul makes a link in the next verse, a direct parallel to this statement. Look what it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's essentially saying the same thing. The idea of the inner being and the heart, they're the same thing. The heart is a really important theological concept to grasp throughout the scriptures. You see, the heart is considered mission control center of your life. Biblically speaking, it's the seatbed of your thoughts, your will, your emotions. That's where everything takes place, right here. It's kind of all in the Jewish mind, gathered up in the Greek mind, gathered up into one kind of area. This is what you live from. This is why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the what? Heart, the mouth speaks. You see, this controls you. And so Paul's prayer is that our inner being or our heart would be the focus of God's power and strength. This is the place that God is working on in every one of our lives to change us and to grow us and to make us more like Jesus. You say, why Why is this so important that our hearts are being strengthened with power and ability? Because this is how we fight sin. This is how we find victory over sin, when God strengthens us in our inner being. This is how we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with greater and greater courage. This is how we love others like Christ has loved us. This is how we endure trials and suffering and pain in this present life. This is how we resist the temptation of Satan himself. It all happens by God strengthening us in our inner being. You can see why this prayer is so important. In fact, Paul kind of alludes to the inner being uh, elsewhere in 2 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He, listen to what he says. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, here it is, our inner self or inner being is being renewed day by day. I mean, I, I think we all understand that this, this, these bodies, right? I mean, we ain't getting any younger here, people, right? These bodies are breaking down, some of us quicker than others, but we ain't getting any prettier. You know what Paul says? He says, listen, yes, well, well, this reality, this self-evident reality should be true to everyone, right? All of us, this outer body is wasting away, it's breaking down. This is the effects of the fall on our physical bodies. He says this, that this should be a self-evident truth for all believers in Jesus Christ who have the spirit of God within them, that though the outer person is being broken down and fading away, the inner person is being renewed and strengthened and built up day by day. So the older you get, listen, the stronger you can get in Christ. You know what's so interesting as I think about the, the Apostle Paul and his prayers? You can look through the scriptures and you can actually, you can see a, a number of prayers that Paul prays on behalf of the churches that he writes to, but it's always so fascinating to me. When Paul is praying for these believers, you never see Paul pray that God would change their circumstances. Isn't that interesting? And just understand this, that most of the believers that Paul was writing to were living in circumstances that we can hardly fathom or imagine. The persecution was real. The suffering was real. Look what Paul suffered and endured. In fact, the 2 Corinthians 4 passage goes on to talk about how these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. He's saying, you want to know how you can endure this life? It's not about the physical comforts, it's about the spiritual strength. But it's so fascinating that Paul, he never prays that their circumstances would change. You know what he always prays for? That in their circumstances, God would change them. Now just think about your prayer life for a minute. When you go to God in prayer, you don't have to put your hand up because this would be really embarrassing probably for me too. 
How often are you going to God simply to change your circumstances? God, just get me out of this circumstance and I'll start living for you, right? Or God, just fix this problem in my life and everything's going to be better. And meanwhile, God's saying, I don't want to just take all those things away. I'm actually trying to use those things because I'm trying to fix you. You know, if we're not changing that God would change our circumstances, we're usually praying that God would change somebody else, right? God, change my husband, right? I've never done a, a marriage counseling session where somebody walks in, the couple walks in, somebody sits down and says, Pastor Ann, I, I just want to let you know, this is all my fault. And I say, why are we here? It's always like this. Can you fix them? I'm waiting for the day that somebody walks in and says, just fix me. I'm the problem. But you see, this is the heart of the believer in Jesus Christ. This is what it should be. God, fix me. God, change me. God, do a work in me. My inner being, my heart, Lord, needs to be fixed. And you know what Paul depicts here in Ephesians 3 and also in 2 Corinthians 4, the passage we just looked at, and in Romans 7 where he talks about the, the battle that's being waged within us, you know, the flesh and the spirit of God that goes to battle against one another. What Paul depicts in all of these passages and throughout the New Testament is that the believer is helpless without the power of God. We cannot do it. And the fact that Paul is praying for it here testifies to the reality that we're not always experiencing it. This is our greatest need. I would argue this is our greatest need on a daily basis that God's power, uh, the power of his spirit would be at work in our inner being. You say, why? Why? Look at verse 17. He tells us why. So that, here's why, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the result of being strengthened with his power in your inner being. You can live a life by faith, not by sight. So the Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Paul uses the language again here of the inner man and the heart interchangeably, but notice here that the point is the same, the strength of the spirit and the indwelling of Jesus Christ. Christ dwells in our hearts by the Spirit, and the result is power. Now, it's interesting. Paul chose a, a word here for dwelling that is incredibly important. He could have chosen a number of different words to give a sense of what he meant, but he chose one that was very particular. The idea here is that we're not just talking about the, the permanent indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. We're talking about the dwelling in the way that there is a constant flow of power being manifested in our lives. He, he's speaking more than just dwelling in our hearts the way we might think of dwelling in a, in a house, like you, you're there. He's talking, listen, this is really important. He's talking more specifically about Christ ruling our hearts. And there's a massive difference between those two ideas. It's not simply that Paul is wanting the Spirit of God to inhabit our hearts. He already does, right? As believers, the Spirit of God is already present. Remember, Paul's writing to believers. The Spirit of God is there. It has not left, yet the power of the Spirit is not always being manifested in our lives. He's not simply asking that the Spirit of God would come and settle down, he's acting for an active, ongoing power. You know, it's possible to have someone live in your house but not really live in your house, right? Usually we call them teenagers. You know what I mean? It's possible to have somebody who's in your house but they're not really actively engaged in the life of the home. Right, they go to their room, they shut the door, but they're not involved in any decision-making, they're not involved in any family functions, they're not involved in any kind of joy or life in the home. There's no real fellowship. I'm pretty convinced that that's what so many Christians have done with Jesus. You know, we've relegated him to this tiny room in our house. We've shoved him into a closet, and we've essentially said, you know, Jesus, this is my home, but here's your space, okay? And, and if we could just have a quick conversation, it would be great if you just stayed here and didn't bother with any of these other rooms. And I think this can happen, too, by the way, um, 
for Christians who've been walking with the Lord for a long time. I think oftentimes when we become followers of Jesus Christ, you know, he comes in and we're excited and we're thrilled and we're submitting every part of our lives to Jesus. But then sometimes gradually over time, you know, the affections of our heart and the desires for the things of the world begin to pull at us and they pull us away from Jesus. And before we know it, you know, the, the nearness and the presence of God seems very distant and very far. And subtly, sometimes without even realizing it, we've, we've pushed Jesus, who where at one time he had full reign of the house, we've pushed him into a closet. But the truth is, listen, that all of us need to let him out and let him loosen our hearts. We need to be asking him to dwell every day, listen, to dwell truly and fully in every single area of our hearts, allowing him access and authority over all things in our lives. There are some of us in this room who have not given God access to things in our lives. We're holding God at arms. Like some of you haven't given God access to your marriage. You're like, God, I've got this marriage thing. I don't need your help. I'm gonna do things my way. And the problem is, is doing things your way is breaking everything. There are some of us who haven't given God the access or the authority over our children. And we're trying to control and manipulate and, and work things out our way instead of submitting and surrendering and yielding to God. And we need to bring God over that. Some of us need to bring God over and give over our finances. We need to give over our decisions about entertainment, our decisions about education, our decisions about careers. Because you see, the more we live in humble dependence, the more he dwells in our hearts. And he sweeps every room clean. You see, having God dwell in every room in the house is essentially inviting God to do a full renovation in every room. Saying, God, you come in and you make me look far different and far better than I could have ever dreamed or imagined in doing in my own strength. You see, but some of you or maybe even wrestling with this. You're like, well, I'm trying to give stuff over to Jesus, but the problem is you've never actually given yourself over to Jesus. And what God would want most for you is to understand that you can't put the car before the horse. You can't just submit individual rooms to God. You need to give him the whole house. You need to give your life to Jesus. And, and so listen, I just don't want to assume, Paul's writing to Christians here, but I don't want to assume that everybody in this room is at the same place. Some of you are just checking Jesus out. You're trying to ask some questions and figure out what this really means. And here really is the heart of the gospel. It is about making Jesus Christ the Lord and master of your life. It's believing who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh, right? Here we are in our rebellion against God, sin-broken, sin-cursed world, and God, out of love, looks down upon us, and he says to us sinners, listen, you have made a complete mess of this. No relationship, no proximity, and by the way, you can't get to me, you can't do anything good enough, you can't become good enough, there's nothing you could offer that I want that you need, but instead, because I love you so much, I'm going to come into the sin-sick world for you. And the God of heaven and earth walked among sinners like you and me. But it gets even better than that. He marched right to a cross of wood and he was put to death by the hands of sinful men under the preordained plan of God. And as Jesus Christ hung on a cross, he suffered not just physical death, he suffered spiritually as God unleashed the wrath deserved for you and me upon his son, Jesus Christ. And the reason he did that is to pay in full for your sin so that you could be made right with God. All of your sin, past, present, and future, could be wiped away. You could be washed as white as snow. He could take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. Amen? Amen. But the best news of the gospel is that we do not worship a dead Savior who just suffered in our place. Our Savior marched out of the grave three days later, and he rose to the right hand of the Father, where he sits enthroned, ruling and reigning with the Father. And because he is Lord of all, listen, because he is Lord of all, because he has conquered your greatest foe and your greatest enemy in sin and death, listen, if you submit yourself to him, he becomes Lord of your life. All you gotta do is turn from your sin and acknowledge what God says is true already, that you're a sinner in, sinner in need of a savior. And God in his grace meets you there. And he says, listen, let us begin this life that is now yielded to me. But he begins with this first moment. You can do that right now. 
You don't have to wait for an end. You don't have to put up a hand. You can do that right now. You can call out to the Lord and say, God, I need you. You need to save me. I see who I am. I need you to be Lord of my life. Take me. Take all of me. And then begins the daily process of continually yielding over to God, having him clean every room of the house over and over again to make us look more like Jesus. And that's exactly where Paul moves us to next. You see, we need an increased spiritual ability, but that is going to produce for us an increased spiritual stability. The opening expression here is really important in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. I mean, listen to those words, rooted and grounded, and the the stability and the strength that that paints for us. Paul here mixes his metaphors, rooted is agricultural and grounded is architectural, but their significance is perfectly parallel. Paul is painting this picture of stability and strength. Like trees, our lives are to send down roots deep and wide into the soil of love. Like buildings, the foundations of our lives here on earth are to have deep, solid foundations of love. And if we are properly rooted and properly constructed on a foundation of love, nothing will be able to shake us. Here's what you have to see that's so important in this passage. This is not talking about our love for Christ. It is talking about his love for us. Can you see the difference between those two and why one produces stability and the other produces shaky ground? I mean, could you imagine that your confidence was built upon your love for God? If you're anything like me, your love for God, it's like like a roller coaster ride sometimes. And if God accepted you and grounded you and built you upon your love for him, we'd all be in real big trouble. But if our stability is founded upon God's love for us, God's love that that never changes, God's love that's not whimsical and fleeting and temporary like our love is so often, it's a love that's unshakable that produces a life of stability. And the idea here is that we will know and deeply experience God's love for us. That's the part of the point here. And his call is to go beyond superficialities. It's meant to be tasted and experienced. This isn't mere intellectual understanding. And you see that. Paul does call for some kind of mental comprehension, but he pushes beyond those boundaries into the experiential side of the relationship. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love, look at verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So he's like, know it, understand it, but understand that you can't really know it, but you must experience it. Do you get it? Right. You know, one of those things that I love about young children is that they try to, you know, especially as they're developing and maturing, is they're trying to comprehend things that they, that they can't yet comprehend. And so they're, they're trying to quantify things and they're asking questions. You know, I have three young children. And uh, I remember in particular my son, he thinks in terms of you know, quantifying everything. And so when we were kind of talking through a lot of the theology of God with him and he's three, four years old probably in there, he would often be trying to wrestle with, um, you know, the, the, the size of God, the scope of God, the strength of God, things that you can't really quantify. And, but he would regularly come to me and, Dad, you know, he just, out of the blue, hey, Dad, how, how big is God? I'm like, well, he's pretty big, son. He's pretty big. He's like, well, is God bigger than that truck? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's got that covered. So we'll go, <laughs> is, is God bigger than our house, Dad? Yeah, 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 he kind of has to be. And he's, well, how strong is God, Dad? Is, is God stronger than you? That one blew his mind. Okay. They're trying to quantify what can't really be quantified. You know, it's like the little kid who walks up to you, your child, and they say, Dad, I love you this much. Like, that's it, your arms are tiny.
You see, when it comes, though, to the love of God, it's impossible to truly comprehend the magnitude and the scope of his love. And yet Paul here calls us to consider this infinite love of Christ And the measurements that he gives us here, listen, they're poetic expressions that describe his infinite, inexhaustible, incomprehensible, and incomparable love that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, with the breadth and length and height and depth. I I, I love what St. Augustine said about this. He said, his love is wide enough to embrace the world. It is long enough to last forever. Spurgeon said this, it is so long that your old age cannot wear it out, so long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it, your successive temptations shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. High enough to take sinners to heaven, deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. I mean, can you just pause for a moment? I mean, you're hearing me talk about this, but you need to take this in personally. This is Paul's prayer. Like, Christian, do you understand that you could never fully comprehend the magnitude of God's love toward you? You have no idea how much God loves you. The closest we can even begin to comprehend God's love is to simply go to the incarnation and to see that God would look at us in our rebellion and sinfulness and then to look at the cross and to say, God, you would die for me? Isn't that amazing to you this morning? Like to, to know what you know about yourself, and let's be honest, you know more about yourself than anybody else in this room. To know what you've done to God to know the constant rebellion and the wickedness and the evil and all of the shame and the guilt that we've experienced in our lives of sin. Listen, to know what you know about yourself and then to know this, listen, that God looks upon you with a love that you will never fully comprehend. How awesome is that? Like, hallelujah, what a savior, amen? I mean, this is the love of God that Paul is trying to express, but he knows that you can't grasp it fully, but he longs for us to experience it personally. I wonder how often we truly take the time to reflect upon and seek a greater understanding of Christ's love for us and all that we would do this, all how it would change the way we lived our lives, all the stability and the strength that we would gather from knowing that the God of this universe loves us so dearly. But I want you to notice that there's a key here that this is not to be our solitary, individualistic, isolated occupation. I like to tell our church that Christianity was never intended to be a solo sport. You're never designed to do this Christian life on your own. You're not called to live the Christian life on an island. In fact, you're brought into a community. And Paul says, this is so fascinating. He says in verse 18 that you may have strength to comprehend. Do you notice these next few words? With all the saints. John Stott comments on on this phrase and he says this, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, black and white, with all their varied backgrounds and experiences, he says. He says, you know what you're saying? Like one of the ways that we get to experience the love of God is that we are put into a, a community with people who are filled with the Spirit of God and are called to love others like God in Christ loves us. So you see what being a part of the church family does? It allows us to regularly be immersed in the love of God as God gifts each one of you. And he calls you into service of the body of Christ. You are showing and allowing people to know and experience in a very personal way God's love for them. This happens all the time in the Christian life as we do this together. It happens when we gather together to sing, when we sing of God's love for us, when we sing to one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It happens when we sit under his word and we're reminded together of God's love for us, the bride of Christ. It happens when we meet together to pray and to seek the face of the Lord. It happens when we observe it in our covenant community as well as experience it, when we share it and discuss it and study it. It happens in the life of the church. This is how Paul calls us to pray that we might have increased spiritual stability and finally and quickly increased spiritual maturity. 
And again, this really sums up the reason for truly knowing this love. What does this produce and bring forth within us as we experience it? Verse 19, the very last half, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says it another way in the scriptures, that Christ may be formed in you. You see, it's through him and his love that the believer is made complete or mature, that we grow up into the person that God has called us to be, and we cannot be mature unless we know and experience the power and love of God in Christ and doing it together. And yes, while we are already filled with his fullness in the, with the Spirit of God, we are also called to grow up into him and to reach fullness. Paul's going to explain this in Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 16, where he says, we're no longer to be like children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but instead we're to, to grow up into the mature man. Paul is calling us to become practically who we already are positionally. To be filled with God is to be filled with all of his moral excellence and perfection and power. And we need the fullness of God's love and power in order to be like Christ. So church, let that be our pursuit. And let that be our prayer. And let that lead finally to our praise. See, Paul lands with this note of praise and he reminds us that we are called to pray with great expectation. He says in verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. I love this. Paul begins, or he ends, excuse me, by piling up words for God's divine power. He, he wants to really highlight and stack up these words so that we understand the magnitude of God's power toward us who believe and I just, the very first word he uses is so, so helpful. Now, to him who is able. Now just, just pause on that for a moment because I think we need to be reminded that our God is able. How often do we go to prayer to God with a faithless kind of approach and, and unsure and, and really unsettled about what God is able to do in our hearts? And, we need to be reminded, listen, that there's nothing in our lives that God is not able to overcome. And I don't know how you walked in here this morning. I don't know if you walked in here just with the weight of the world on your shoulders and maybe struggling just immensely with sin in your life and maybe it's been plaguing you for years or even decades and you're just longing for freedom and there's a sense in your heart where you're like, I don't think, it's been so long, I don't think God is able. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to you this morning. Our God is able. Maybe you walked in here with a broken marriage. Maybe you're on the cusp of ruining everything in your life and your family. Maybe you're on the verge of a divorce and you walked in here thinking, this is, this is so broken, it is beyond repair, there's no possible way this could ever be fixed. And the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, looks at you today and he says, our God is able. Or there's a, a lost loved one in your life, maybe you have a prodigal child living in your very home and you are watching them destroy their life and it is tearing you up and you weep for them, but you've pretty much thrown the towel in and given up hope and God says to you in your brokenness and weakness, you are not able, but I am. But the best part of this verse is that it doesn't just stop with able. Do you notice that? He says, now to him who is able to do far more, right? So whatever you think God might be able to do, guess what? It's nothing compared to what he can really do. Far more abundantly, Paul says. Like just, just if you think you can cap God off here and say, maybe he can do this, and this is way beyond my wildest imaginations. He, he says, listen, you've got to correct your understanding of who your God is because he is able to do far more abundantly than all you can ask or think. There is nothing... Nothing too great for the God who spoke this universe into creation with a word to do. And that is our God. 
And that should fill your heart with great encouragement. Listen, but it should cause you to run to God with great expectation in your prayer life. You need to embrace this this morning. Listen, that God, listen to this thought. God can do more in response to one prayer than we can do in 100 years of planning and plotting. Take that in in our busy, self-sufficient culture right now. Where we say, I can do this, God. I'll fix this. I've got it figured out, God. I've got a plan made. God can do more in one moment of prayer than you can do in a a thousand, in in an infinite amount of time that you may have. In all of your planning and plotting, in all of my planning, God can do more in a single moment of prayer. I mean, do we believe that he is the sovereign Lord and king of the universe or not? Do we believe that, that he raised Jesus from the dead and he placed him as head over the church? That he put all things under his feet? If so, then let us pour our heart out to him, believing that he is able. And we need a vision of God that increases our faith in God's greatness. And the best way to do this is to fill our minds with the word of God, the truth of all that he is, what he has revealed himself to be. The more we immerse ourselves here, the more we will believe our God is able. And loved ones, he says that this is according to his power that's at work within us. There is a bold expectation here that we must learn to embrace in our prayers and in our fellowship with God. Paul is utterly convinced about what God is able to do. And some of us in here, we pray with such a lack of faith. We pray with such a fear and trepidation and timidity. And when we're praying God's will and God's word, let us not shrink back from doing so with great boldness and great confidence. So while we may come like a meek little lamb, let us grab a hold of the throne of grace like a bold and courageous lion. For our God, listen, longs for his children to pray like this because he longs to put his mighty power on display See, why? Well, that's why Paul ends where he does in verse 21. Why would God want to do this? Why would God want to do so much more than we could ever think or ask or imagine? Why? To him be the glory. To him be glory in the church. Everything that happens here, everything supernatural, everything that is beyond our wildest expectations, all of this is so that he might receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. From who? Through all generations, forever and ever, amen. I mean, you think about that forever and ever and ever. Like God's plan was this. I'm going to take you in your weakness and your brokenness and then for all of eternity, all the saints from every generation will gather around the throne and say, God, this is all, every single part of it, not a result of me. It's all in fact in spite of me. It is all because of you and your power for your glory. That's going to be the song of heaven. Look what you've done, Lord. Look what you've done. Look what you've done. Look what only you could do. forever, all for his power, forever, all for his love, forever and always by his people, forever in Christ Jesus, the lamb who was slain, forever God will be glorified in Christ who fell to his knees in the garden of Gethsemane, who drank the cup of wrath that we might receive the cup of grace who has reconciled us to the Father and to one another and who dwells in our hearts through faith by the Spirit. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. So the next time you think about doing some great work for God, get on your knees and ask God to do a great work in and through you. We must begin to believe that prayer is not some preparation for our great work but it is the great work itself. Also that forever and ever and ever, God will get the glory. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we, we pray, God, now that you would help us even to believe the truths that you have just instructed us in through your word. That, Father, prayer is not some add-on to our lives. It's not something we need to do every now and again. It's something, Lord, that our spiritual lives truly and fully depend on. God, it is a declaration that we are insufficient, that we are inadequate, that we are weak, but it is also a declaration, Lord, that you are sufficient, you are adequate, and you are strong. And so, God, we pray that you would make us a humble people, Lord, who rejoice in our weakness and who long to see your power at work in our inner being, taking us and changing us and making us more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and I pray, Lord, that you and your spirit would work mightily in their hearts. That God, you would give us a great confidence and expectation, believing, Father, that you can do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. Lord, we would ask that you would do it. Do it all, Lord, for the glory and honor and fame of your name so that forever our great God will be proclaimed and the resounding song of heaven will be glory to you, O God. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.